0: Welcome to peace Meal, a podcast hosted by the emily program and veritas collaborative peace Meal covers topics related to eating disorders body image and how society may influence our thinking please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed i'm your host jillian lambert today we're joined by katie whipple who will share with us her recovery story Katie is a certified public accountant and a businesswoman who recently co-led a $7 billion business deal as the youngest and only female on her team. After completing said deal, she transitioned from New York City to Indiana where her focus shifted to community involvement through Junior Achievement, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and her podcast, Cup of Common Grounds. Awesome, check it out. Katie decided five years into her, her recovery to compete in pageants after a seven-year hiatus and will be competing for Miss Indiana USA in April. Her favorite quote is, if not me, then who? Meaning, if you do not believe in yourself, who will? Thanks for being here, Katie. We're really looking forward to this conversation.
1: I've been looking forward to this conversation as well as someone who is now a little bit further into the recovery process than potentially some of your listeners. It is so... I'm I'm so humbled to be a part of this conversation and I'm just so grateful that there is a platform like this to talk about our recovery journeys and to also, you know, shed light that no one is alone in this journey, regardless on whatever step you're on, if you're on step zero or step 110.
0: Absolutely. That's,
1: that is a beautiful
0: place to start. Maybe get us started by telling us a little bit about the development of your eating disorder. What was going on in your life around that time?
1: there's a lot of things that factor into an eating disorder. A lot of subcontextual things that are going on within our culture, within our society, but also subliminal messaging that you're getting from your family and your friends as well. And so for me, I have started getting some messaging when I was a little bit younger, traditionally when a lot of people do, which is in high school. Um, when I was in high school, I was a homeschooler, a little bit of a, a mousy blonde homeschooler from St. Louis, Missouri. And I started transitioning into blossoming into a young woman. And so I actually dyed my hair. I became this beautiful Auburn, which I still proudly wear today because I feel like it fits my personality. And I started doing things like changing my diet a little bit, changing also my exercise patterns because I had stopped doing sports. And so I started being a little bit more conscientious about what was going on with what was going into my body and what I was doing with my body, because I feel like as we go into high school, we become so much more self-aware because like everyone else is so much self-aware, more self-aware. And also like there's boys, which is a thing. And then people want to do fashion and makeup and all these sorts of cool things at the time. And I'm just like, I want to fit in. I want to do all these things. And I want the attention from the boys. And that's when I started focusing on my appearance, which before then I had, done a really good job actually of not really focusing on my appearance that much. I was more focused inwardly on like on who I was as a person. One of the reasons I actually got into pageantry was because I wanted to build my own self-confidence. So I was 12 years old and I decided to enter my very first pageant and the reason that I did it I went to my mom I was about to go to public school for the first time and as a homeschooler that is whoa, that's crazy. So I went to her and I was like, I want to build my self confidence. And she's like, well, how do you want to do that? And I was like, I'm going to enter a pageant because I had to interview in front of people. I had to go up in front of people and give an introduction about myself. And then I had to go on stage and not trip in a gown and heels. And so I did that and I placed top 15 my first year. And then I didn't look back for a very long time. But as a young girl, when you're doing pageantry, it really is focused on your self-development, and not necessarily on your looks. And it doesn't kind of evolve into that until around the time that you're actually in high school. So I started getting messaging from pageants. I got messaging from boys. I got messaging from friends and family that your appearance does actually indeed matter. And so when I went into college, I started realizing that I couldn't control my appearance as well as I could have in high school because there's a lot more up in the air when you go to college. You don't have that same structure of your parents, you don't have that string structure of school, you don't have that same even support system that you did in high school. And so when I went to college, I had a lack of structure. And then when I also went to college, also being from a homeschool background, there was a lot of challenges to the purity culture, which I grew up in as well. And so when I went to college, one of my, some of my high school friends would say to me cuz I actually did go back to homeschool when I when I was in high school. I realized that that was a better learning style for me and then also I was allowed to explore more interests and and that sort of thing. So, when I went to college, my high school friends were warning me about when you go to college, Katie, you're going to like within the first 48 hours. And I remember very clearly they said, "Within the first 48 hours, you're going to learn where to get drugs, where to get alcohol, where to get a fake ID." And then also there's going to be people having sex in the room next to you. All those things happened. And that terrified me, like legitimately it terrified me. I was like in my room, I had a single, somehow I magically got a single um, and I went to a big 10 college too. So like, it was all around me and I like hid in my room and I was like, I'm not coming out of here, like legitimately not coming out of here. So I had an attack to kind of like my identity when I went there, I had that lack of support. And then I had also a family tragedy happen at the end of my freshman year. Unfortunately, I lost my grandmother to suicide my freshman year of college as well. So kind of like those things were like this perfect storm of meaning to control something in my life. And so for me, that was appearance. It It was really, really difficult, but it was a lot of things, not just one,
0: unfortunately. But well, wow, they, thank you. I, I mean, sort of taking all these threads that you spoke of and starting to weave them together, it does speak to the the influence of culture and the, and change and how, in times of change, we seek predictability and and security. And that's what our our spirit seeks. It's what our neurobiology seeks. It's really uh, often when people reflect on their on their journey with an eating disorder at that time of change. Often shows up as a vulnerable time what What did it feel like to to live with this sort of appearance obsession and and then spiraling into an eating disorder? how did that How did that feel for you? Give us a sense of how that how that felt? I mean, I
1: think what's hardest about it is that I'm a really smart person, and so I tried to logic myself out of it. I tried to use both motion and logic. And something that I learned more recently is that we have a conscious and a subconscious. And so my conscious brain was actively trying to work against my subconscious brain. Your subconscious brain is fully formed when you are born as a child. So it's taking in all of these different influences and everything as a child and your subconscious mind will sometimes derail then your conscious mind because your conscious mind doesn't fully form until until you're older. And so my subconscious mind was actively working against my conscious mind the entire time leading up to my eating disorder because I knew the right answer, which was the hardest part out of my eating disorder was that the entire time I knew what I was supposed to do, but I was incapable of not doing it. And I think that was when I felt really at my lowest point. Because kind of leading up to when it got really bad for my eating disorder, I think I had this false sense of comfort that I could control it because I was controlling in my own brain. Maybe I wasn't doing a good job of it, but in my own brain, I was doing a really good job of controlling what everyone thought around me. At the time when I was in in, in college and my eating disorder really kicked up, I was in this really prestigious finance program. And I was a sophomore. It was for juniors. So the fact that I was doing it as a sophomore was insane. There's only three sophomores who did it. I was the only female. And then out of all the juniors, I was like one of six females. And there was about 70 juniors. And so I was in a very male-dominated environment. I was going for a very male-dominated role in New York City. And I thought I was the bee's knees because I was, of course, the one of. And so for me, that was always a positive in my mind back when I was in college because that meant I was so exceptional. During my eating disorder, I was feeding myself like I am doing this so I can continue to be exceptional. And so that's what led down like this slippery slope to the edge of where I couldn't control it anymore and it was controlling me.
0: Wow. And when you were sort of working to be that exceptional person, an exception in a, in a field where, where you were in many ways, an exception. How did it feel inside? Did you did that? Did your internal experience mirror that feeling super confident that you had this and you were doing really well? Or was your internal experience different than confident? Say a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I would say my internal experience was it was these peaks and valleys, peaks of, oh, my gosh, I'm part of my language, the shit. And then a lot of valleys of, I don't know what I'm doing and there's no roadmap and everyone around me told me I was doing great. And I did actually tell some people that I had an eating disorder. And I remember very vividly a friend hugging me after I told them, because I recognized it. I recognized it before a lot of people did. I was trying to be brave and, and let someone into my world and let loose some of that control. And they, they hugged me they told me everything was going to be okay and then we never talked about it ever again because like I mean that's a lot of pressure to put on another kid in college like it legitimately is it it wasn't it wasn't necessarily fair to them and I know that now but I was angry and so I didn't open up to too terribly much again because I was so scared that I was going to lose control and that was a feeling that I had every day that I was I was going to lose it. I wasn't going to be enough. I wasn't going to be worthy of all the things that I had going on. They picked the wrong person to put, like, I was so incredibly afraid that the person who picked me for the finance program was going to wake up and realize that I was the wrong person. And it was a fear that I had a lot of the time. And then there was another fear. There was this other fear that I remember very clearly when my parents found out I had an eating disorder, they of course told my siblings, of course, cause there's, we had no secrets in my family, especially after my grandmother in regards to mental health. And I remember very clearly my sister pulling me aside, we were going on a walk and it was just her and me. And we would take walks every once in a while cause she has type one diabetes. And so we would take walks to help bring down her blood sugar whenever I was home from, from college. And we still do, <laughs> but she pulled me aside during the walk, and she started crying. She's like, "I don't want you to die." And I was probably a good four months into attempting to kind of seek therapy at that point. Because to give a little bit of a timeline, my eating disorder really flared up my sophomore year. By sophomore Christmas, my parents had figured out I had an eating disorder, and so I was stuck. I was put in therapy immediately when I got back to school in, in January. So this is probably March, April. My sister was telling me. And I said, yes, of course, like, Ashley, I'm not gonna die. Like nothing bad's going to happen, but it weighed on me. So I had this terrifying dichotomy within me of like, I can't give up control, but what if I die? I can't give up control of my eating disorder. If I give up control of my eating disorder, I'm not worthy enough, I'm not gonna be enough or I'm going to die. And that was a scary thought that kept running through my brain. And so my anxiety was so bad.
0: I don't know honestly how i functioned or did anything well it sounds yeah it sounds incredible it sounds like it that intense experience that we often hear people speak to that it feels so intense inside and yet people outside just see you functioning great and and don't see that that distress i mean we we tend to hear more about like the behaviors that people see or the behaviors with food or the behaviors with exercise or whatever it is, we tend to hear more about that, uh, maybe the appearance aspects than the emotional or the mental aspects of it. But I, I think a lot of people can relate to that, that fear, that anxiety, that that insecurity of am I enough, that worry about, I imagine, worry about, you know, what is your family worried about, and now your sister's worried, and the feeling of of, you know, how will that, influence other people and the, the often loneliness that people experience when they just don't know that other people can help them with eating disorder and know quite how to reach out or, or that there is somebody to reach out to. It really, it's part of the reason that we we often talk about eating disorders, like they're not really about food, but they sure are about food when food is around. And so they're, they're both and. I uh, and a lot of people and people with you know with a history of an eating disorder, and even people without a history of an eating disorder can struggle to to experience those feelings and name them and give voice to them. And it sounds like you tried with that that friend in college like, here, here's my stuff. And it is a lot to to hear. And it's an important skill to have to be able to share your feelings and to listen to other people's feelings. Name our feelings, it's that's the first step, right? How how did that go for you? In in, in your family, you talked with the loss of your grandmother to suicide and having no secrets and being committed to talking in your family. How does that play out for you as you think about your experience with eating disorder? How has talking to people about it benefited your recovery as you as you practice that more and talked about it more?
1: I would say. Being open is the only reason I am recovered. And that's a really powerful statement to say because I thought I would have more control over my eating disorder if I didn't share. And, and what I found is that once I was open with it and truly open that I needed help and I could give people actionable items to help me, that created a good ecosystem for me to actually survive. recovery. And so with my family and with my friends, when I finally was able to be in a space where I could make meaningful steps to start recovering, to all you college students out there, we often, and I still did this as a consultant, eat at our desks. And we just keep powering through. And so in your mind, for me, it was really hard to get my mind off of what I just ate. And so I asked my friends, would you go on a walk with me afterwards? Would you entertain me? Would you help me kind of get my mind off of what we just did? And that was very helpful. And so I instituted that with my family as well. And so the food then wasn't the focus. It was everything that was going on afterwards. And so it just helped take my mind and anxiety off that because like With anxiety, of course, you're always like super focused on that one aspect, whether it can be through work, food, what have you. And so for me, that was very important to to be open of like, even with friends who didn't know that I had an eating disorder, I was just like, can you go for a walk with me afterwards? Can you like, just, you know, sometimes people don't need to know. They don't. But like, if you can just tell them like, hey, I need to go for a walk, more likely than not, especially in college, people are going to be like, yeah, of course, I don't want to study. I'd rather go on a walk. So that was really helpful when I was in college. And then in terms of being with my family, I worked really hard with naming my my feelings to them. I tried really hard to be more open, especially as an older sister. I have three younger siblings. And so my always thought is, and it's been a, a thought for a long time, is I never want my siblings to feel like I can't be there for them. And so to show them that I can be there for them, I need to be open with them to show them that there literally is nothing that, that they wouldn't be able to tell me because Lord knows I'm, I have stuff, I have things. And so that was kind of the mentality that I started taking from my eating disorder as well was that everyone has their things. And so as long as I start becoming open with them, not only does it allow me to fully feel included actually in control of my emotions because I'm writing the narrative now, not my disorder thoughts, but allows other people to share their narratives as well. So that was, that's been really, really helpful, but it's been hard. It's hard too, because there's some people that don't like that because it makes them uncomfortable because they, they're not open enough and that's okay. It took me a really long time to get to that spot. And I'm really grateful that my dad's at, at that spot before his mother passed away he was not a touchy-feely dad in that sense. He was always there to give you a hug, but to talk about emotions was not his thing. He was so good during my time of recovery, like my, my pivotal time of recovery. And afterwards too, he was visiting New York City when I had just moved there and I started seeing a therapist. And I had a really rough session where we were kind of uncovering some things. And I, of course, stuck on a smile afterwards. And I was just like, I don't want to like ruin our night. And we went to go see Kinky Boots on Broadway. And we went to dinner and we had a fabulous night. And I decided that as he was about to drop me off at my apartment to say goodnight, I was in an emotional state to be alone in my apartment. And so I asked him, can I go to your hotel with you? And once I got back to the hotel with him and we were kind of chit chatting for a little bit, I finally just started crying and telling him exactly like what went on at therapy. And he just, he was just there in my rock and just incredibly emotionally sensitive to what was happening. And I now think of my dad as a confidant of what I can, I can talk with him and share with him what's going on in my life. And he may not always get it, but he's always going to be there to tell me that it's okay and that everything will work
0: out. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Uh, it's so powerful. Such a powerful illustration of of taking that risk to open up and to find out that people will be there for us in the ways that they they can, and and how beautiful that is. Let's think about sort of shift a little bit into how you live out recovery in in your everyday life. You know, we we think about treatment a lot, and and sort of the uh, sort of how we do recovery. But it, it really happens in our relationships, and our routines, and our hobbies. And, and we'd love to talk about one of your uh, passionaries, your involvement in pageantry. And we know you've participated in, and you continue to participate in competitions within uh, the Miss USA and the Miss Teen USA systems. Pageants are certainly a, a bit of a contested part of our culture, and I think a lot of people listening might have trouble reconciling the idea of pageants and eating disorder recovery the focus on appearances, the sort of mainstream beauty standards that are so powerful, the competition and comparison among contestants. We know those things could be potentially risky for, for people with eating disorders. And and really curious to hear your experience about your decision to compete in pageants and what did you hope to get uh, out of the experience? What concerns have you had participating when in recovery? So really to walk us through sort of How did you get involved and how does that, uh, how does your recovery weave with your pageant participation?
1: I mean, there's a lot to unpack with my decision to go back into pageantry or even me being comfortable with that decision because, especially with having previously had an eating disorder, it's a lot, particularly in the specific system that I'm competing in. The biggest reason I decided to compete in pageants again was because I had so much joy in my life from them when I was growing up. Before all the pressure of appearances, before all the cultural and societal voices started creeping into my head, I had so much fun with it. And pageantry doesn't necessarily lead to eating disorders. People that have predispositions to eating disorders can potentially be triggered by pageantry, though. And so I want to be very clear with that. Like any other, for example, bodybuilding could potentially produce the same results. Being an athlete can potentially produce the same results or even being involved in sometimes in other, like not an academic can re- produce the same results. If you have anxieties, if you have any type of mental health disorder, you potentially could be susceptible to it. So I just want to say that it is, has another layer to and component to it because there are appearances involved and assessments of appearances involved. But that does not automatically mean that you lean into diet culture if you're a part of pageantry. I was actually watching my little sister compete for the title of Miss Indiana Teen USA a couple of years ago. And I looked at my mom and I looked up on stage and there was just something in my heart that just kind of reached out to me and said, you need to do it again. And I hadn't had that desire in seven years, like zero desire to really compete in in a in a real sense because I didn't feel ready. I didn't feel ready to, to potentially put myself in a position where I'd be judged on my appearance because I'd thrown out the scale in my apartment. I had not done anything that could potentially trigger disordered eating for, for five years at that point. I didn't want to set myself up for failure. I didn't want to set myself up to be and that really scary mindset that we talked about earlier of that, of that fear of not being enough and of not being worthy, but I realized that I had let that fear of being afraid, basically I was fearing the fear of not being enough. And I realized I was holding myself back from life. I was putting my life on pause because I was afraid of triggering something as opposed to realizing I have a lot of skill sets. I have a support system in place. So that I can still live a normal life. So why be half of a person in recovery when I can challenge myself to still be a full person within recovery? And that meant to me that I had to do this again because it was coming up and it just wasn't going away. But it it still terrified me. It still terrified me. So I called my sister's pageant coach and I was very upfront with with her at the very beginning of like, I want to compete for the Miss USA system. I'm like, I'm aware that's a swimsuit competition. I'm aware. <laughs> I had an eating disorder though. I want to be able to do this in a very healthy way that does not trigger anything. And so we worked. We put a program in place. I started seeing a therapist again. I set up controls with my mom and my my my, my boyfriend. And I still threw out the scale. For me, because of who I am, I do have some some privileges in life. I am the size that I am, the skin tone that I am, my background that I am, I do traditionally look like a typical, beautiful pageant woman. And that doesn't mean this wasn't hard. And so I think a lot of people, when they see me, they don't see a, disordered, a person who had disordered eating. They don't see a person who's really struggled with it because they say, on the outside, you look great. On the outside, this is easy. And I want to tell you, it was not easy. And it was terrifying for me when I first started that I wasn't going to set up a correct system for myself and that I was going to slip. And I, at one point, leaned on that quote that we said at the very beginning, if not me, then who? And I just had to believe that I set up the proper system for me, that I could, in fact, compete at the Miss USA pageant system with still having an eating disordered background. But I did have, I have had a really good support system in place.
0: The factors that you took into consideration as you were preparing to go back into the pageant world sound very thoughtful. Again, And I think your point about people, you know, we know there are, are genetic predispositions to eating disorders. We know there are higher risk situations and lower risk situations. And you could, you could easily argue that pageantry is a higher risk situation. And it sounds like you really went into it sort of thinking a lot about what you needed to do what you wanted to do that brought you joy, which I, I love that piece of your story that you saw something that brought you joy and you wanted to do it. And you didn't want this eating disorder to hold you back and this eating sort of history to mean that you couldn't do that. And so you yeah. set up a system to keep yourself safe as you were as you were going through. So I, I love those elements of, of how you constructed how to how to do what you wanted to do and keep yourself safe. And it really brings to this idea of sort of knowing your why, like knowing whether something is you're doing it because you really want to do it and it brings you joy or you're doing it because it's really in the service of the eating disorder. Like, is it really for the eating disorder or is it really for recovery? And that can be a helpful sort of self-check-in during ongoing recovery and and even through life. It's always kind of helpful for us to check in with ourselves and say like, how do I feel about this?
1: Really? Well, it's like social media too. Like, why are you posting that picture on social media? There was one that that comes to mind immediately, which is I, I did a swimsuit photo shoot for my 26th birthday because Girl, I felt the most confident about who I was as a person at 26, and at 25 I was a mess because it was during COVID and I was having a huge quarter life crisis. Everyone kept saying midlife crises are a thing. I'm like quarter life is definitely a thing right now. But at 26, I just really felt like I was in, and 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 they still do. Like I feel very confident in, in who I am as a person, and so it was something that I always wanted to do. I always wanted to feel. Like I could do it. I wasn't feeling my most confident my body, but I was feeling the most confident in me. And that was very important also to take a photo shoot then for me as well, because my worth is not defined by how my body looks. It's on how I feel about me. And so I did the the swimsuit photo shoot. And oh my gosh, it was so much fun. I loved it. I went down to Miami for it. I made a whole big deal out of it. I decided that I was going to post a photo on, on Instagram. And that was, I freaked out for about a week after I was like, maybe I should post something. And I was like, oh, what if I do? What if I do? What is the implications of that? And I looked at it from so many different lenses because, well, one, I had I'd already gone back to pageantry. I, I, I was about to compete for the title of Miss New York USA at the time. So I, I was thinking about it from a pageant lens. I was thinking about it from the fact that I had girls like my little sister and I'm like, what's the image that I'm presenting there? And then I had started accumulating followers on Instagram. And so I was thinking, oh, what if guys are looking at this too? Ugh, gross. But then I was also thinking about, okay, what do I want the reactions to be? What it, what am I trying to get at here? Like, what is the purpose of me posting this photo? Is it because I want people to tell me my body looks great? Is it because I want people to validate that I'm beautiful is it because I want what do I want and I realized truly I just wanted to remember the fact that I was that confident I wanted to memorialize the fact that this wasn't a fluke I didn't decide to do this because of any other reason than the fact that this was the year that I chose to focus on myself that year from 25 to 26 I did the work to really figure out who I was as an individual, as and as a person. And that's why I felt so confident to be able to do this shoot. And I just wanted to remember. And so I posted it. And of course, people did all the positive commentary and yada, yada, yada. But I don't look at that. I really don't. And that was something really beautiful for me to to reflect on and to remember. And I actually went and posted on my story afterwards. and I, And I explained this a little bit to people of like, why did I do this? Like, why did I actually post this photo? And it was because of my confidence and because I wanted to memorialize
0: that. It's it's a beautiful image. It sounds like the photo in in your experience, the photo wasn't fully or necessarily about you physically. It was a photo of you, of how yeah. you felt and you were portraying how you felt, which in in so many of the powerful photos we see in the world whether they're of people or of trees or something else beautiful it's a feeling that the photo is conveying so i can hear that in in your conversation with yourself about how do i how do i think through this is somebody who you know maybe doesn't have to you know if i post this on my social media people aren't going to are going to think oh you don't have anything to worry about when it comes to your body or appearance or you know and and we in our culture, form really quick impressions about people and we struggle to understand and feel for parts we don't see or paths we don't know about, or elements like an eating disorder we have no idea about, and I, I think that illustrates, you know, we've had several conversations in preparing for this podcast, like how can we really honor the beauty and the pain of your story, while also keeping in mind that, you know, some might find it hard to relate to your story because of the judgments and stereotypes we have about pageantry or even about eating disorders. And so a couple of things, we're really grateful for your willingness to lean into this. I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit about what it's been like for you to grapple with our questions and and these these topics as we've prepared for this conversation? How has that been for you?
1: it's been really good honestly because it's been really good for me because it checks my own thoughts about things as someone who doesn't sit and work with people with eating disorders all the time i don't necessarily always know what's going on and i only really know Because when I was recovering and starting to recover in 2014, 2015, 2015, when I was actually genuinely recovering, there wasn't a lot out there for eating disorders at that time. There wasn't podcasts. There was, it was very clinical kind of what was out there. You had things with Project Heal, you had different support groups, but I never really was immersed with people that had eating disorders. And so I only really knew my own experience. And so for me, it was really good to kind of hear things from a different lens. And I think that that's when also what's been really powerful about, I think, this past two years with COVID is that we've been able to come and sit with things. And so it's been really good to have these questions kind of challenge my own thoughts on eating disorders as well from my own lens within society, because, you know, I was really fortunate to be in the position that I was coming into having an eating disorder one, I had a supportive family around me, which was incredible. Two, we had the resources to get me help, which was also great. And and third, I also didn't have to be pulled out of school. I was still able to keep up with my studies. And so in a way, sometimes I invalidate my own recovery too, because I'm just like, I don't have it as bad as other people. And so one of the things that I thought was so beautiful in preparing for this was that it made me take restock on like how strong I was for doing the work, because I think we often invalidate ourselves by comparing ourselves to other people and saying, at least we didn't have it this bad. For me, it, it made it more palatable that I, I think for me, it helped make it more bearable that I went through it is because I was just like, at least I didn't have it. As bad, but it didn't let me take up space. It didn't let me be proud. And so I think going through this helped me be more proud of my story. It helps me feel more comfortable with sharing my story. But it also made me more feel more comfortable in challenging other people as well to think about my story. and to also really make me think about, again, my involvement with pageants and an involvement with kind of traditional beauty. And I think pageantry has come a long way in terms of how they define beauty. I think one of the most poignant examples that I've seen is the fact that currently from the Miss USA organization, we have three Black women who've been crowned in a row, which has been so incredible to me. The diversity of skin color on stage has been so incredible. It really has been. But we are really lacking in body diversity. And that's something that I want to, it gives me more desire to
0: challenge that. That is really important and so poignant. In in closing, I just want to ask you one more question. You know, we've talked a lot about uh, about perceptions and thoughts, and, and one thought we hear from a lot of people when they're listening to stories of recovery goes something like, yeah, yeah, Katie, that's great. That's great for you. I'm so glad that that worked for you, but that's never going to happen for me. I'm just never going to be able to find the insight or the support or the change or to change how I think or feel it's just not going to happen for me what would you say to that person
1: I know I've thought a lot about this I really have and there's no magic potion that I can give you to make you believe that it's possible there is none the biggest thing that helps me and so I can give you this encouragement is that I had to get out of bed in the morning and believe that I was enough and I was worthy and that I didn't have to be perfect. I know that we talk a lot about in our society right now that you don't have to be perfect. And everyone like falls over backwards on TikTok to show us that we don't have to be perfect, but that's still for the perception of others. And so I have to internalize every day that I don't have to be perfect. And no one has to see all the kindness that I do. No one has to validate anything about me. It's all on me at the end of the day. And that's okay. We don't have to be the most well-liked person. We don't have to be the most whatever. You are enough
0: sums it up really well. Thank you. Katie, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for this conversation, for your your really deep thinking about it, for our, our collective reflections on it. I really appreciate that you've taken time to spend some time thinking with us.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. I really do appreciate you bringing these voices, not just my story, but everyone else's story out here to be heard and to really not only validate for us our own journeys, like help be a part of that validation process, but also allowing for other people to hear that you're not alone.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.